Welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Jan Orman. In this podcast series, we've invited people we know and admire to tell you their stories. My name's Paula Kotovich. So my name is Craig Sample. Evie Rader. Molly Shorthouse. My name's Percy Knight. I was a career detective in the New South Wales Police Force. I identify as a trans woman. I am a remote doctor in East Arnhem Land. These are people who may not have made the headlines, but whose stories are just as worthy of your attention as those you hear about in the media. Living with cancer. I was struggling with PTSD for eight or nine years. I just had a lot of fear. I was well and truly burnt out. These are people who have flourished and met life's challenges while managing their social and emotional well-being. Uh, my career now uh, is as a mental health advocate and educator. I led a team that negotiated a $22 million native title. It definitely taught me in my life a lot of persistence and given me a lot of strength. We're hoping you'll find something in these stories to inspire you, whatever your situation right now. We'd like to pay our respects to the traditional custodians of the lands on which we meet and pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. I'd like to introduce you to Paul Callaghan. Paul is a proud Waramai man from the Eastern Port Stephens area. He grew up on a mission in Karua in New South Wales and was the first person in his family to finish high school. Now he's working on a PhD. Paul has achieved a great deal in his life and has also experienced depression. His creativity and his cultural background have led him to innovative ways of managing his mental health. Paul's book, Iridescence, Finding Your Colours and Living Your Story, stems from the things he learnt through years of personal crisis. I hope you enjoy his story. Yeah, my name is Paul Callaghan. I'm fast approaching the the age of 60, which is pretty confronting, particularly for an Aboriginal person given on average we're lucky to make it to 64, so I'm pretty well towards the end of, of my time statistically. I'm an Aboriginal man from Warramai country from the Gamapingal clan, so I pay my respects to Aboriginal people throughout this country, throughout New South Wales, and I acknowledge the country I'm sitting in today, which is Gadigal country in Sydney, one of my country is Port Stephens. Our people have been there for a long time. Even though my name's Paul Callaghan, my Koori side is the Ridgeway family. In terms of my career, I am at this point in time, a number of different labels, I guess. I'm primarily an author. I'm also a cultural consultant. I deliver lots of training and workshops around wellbeing based on Aboriginal philosophy and I provide workshops and consultancy services to non-Aboriginal groups about how to understand culture and provide more culturally embedded programs. But my primary purpose in life these days is to be an advocate about mental health and mental health hygiene and the kinds of things one needs to look out for as they're trying to hurdle down this contemporary world of success. Uh, in terms of books, I'm an author and I published a book in 2014 called Iridescence, Finding Your Colours and Living Your Story. And that book, in the five years that I've, I've been talking about it, has sold quite well throughout Australia to the point that a publisher has just picked it up and about to support me to rewrite it for a global audience. The reason I wrote the book 
is that I myself went through mental health issues, major depression and panic attacks on, in my mid-30s. And as I worked through that, I observed that there really was a place for a book that provided insights on well-being based on Aboriginal culture, spirituality and philosophy. And that's how I wrote it. I wrote it as a self-help book. It has lots of key messages. It has lots of, of tasks and exercises. The reason being through my journey of recovery, I found that all the different things I tapped into gave me things to think about. But self-help books, even though a lot of people argue they're cheesy and don't really help, I found them incredibly, incredibly powerful. And so I decided that I would write one to give people a different perspective of how they might look at their well-being, mind, body and spirit. But it came from a place of my own journey through mental health challenges where I was very close to suicide. It is available on my website, which is Cultural Consultancy. If you type in Paul Callaghan on a website, you'll find, you'll find me. But it's also available through all the different e-websites in terms of books and it's, it's quite easy to find if you type in iridescence. My story is obviously unique but it's not. My story from what I've shared around a campfire, one-on-ones with forums of a thousand people is a fairly common story and the way the old people describe these kinds of Thoughts, if you like, or storylines, they'll say same, same, but different, but same, same. And it's the same with our Dreamtime stories across the country. You'll hear them slightly different, but they'll have the same underpinning messages. Same, same, but different. So my story is kind of same, same, but different. So I grew up in a small town called Karua. People quite, the older people, the baby boomers know Karua as the place you stopped at the mobile to go to the toilet on the way to Queensland. That's where my mother grew up on Karua Mission. I actually grew up about a kilometre up the road is my parents' house, but I lived every day on the mission because when my mother had me, she was only 16 and she went down the mission every morning about 8am to be with her family and I spent my days, very pleasant days and pleasant memories, running around on the mission where we had weatherboard and corrugated iron tin humpies with earthen floors, with ducks running around and so... I became a good footballer because I learned to sidestep the duck poo here and there. And even though we didn't have a lot on the mission, the old people were always happy. I never saw fights, I never saw any arguments, I never saw any alcohol issues when I was young on the mission at all. And when I asked mum about that, she said, yeah, we were always happy. It was when the pub came, it's when things changed, it was in the 70s. So I grew up on the mission and I had a, a really wonderful childhood. But then when I hit my teenage years and went to high school, it became fraught with, with stress and anxiety. What happened was that I discovered a love of learning because I had a really great teacher in Year 4 named John Grogan, and we always call him Mr Grogan still. And he was an amazing teacher that lit this fire within me of love of learning. So I loved learning. And so back in those days, I became known as a bit of a bookworm because I loved my studies. That created alienation with, with my mob back on the mission because I kept myself a bit distanced because I, I loved the learning environment. And I was a very quiet student and I've been at school reunions when they 
the students said, how did you go in the HSC? And I said, oh, I finished in the top 15% of the state. And they went, how did you do that? I thought you were a dummy. And I went, no, I was just quiet, just did my thing. And they said, when did you study? And I said, at home. And so that created problems where it fits in with the fact that I didn't really feel connected to my, my own Aboriginal peer group at the time. And in fact, some of the peer group I lived with on the mission wanted to fight me. It became really quite brutal in terms of the pressure to fit in. And so then I started to gravitate towards a white peer group because I needed somewhere. And so I forced myself to adapt into the white peer group, which meant when I got all the stereotypic comments such as, look at that silly black fella over there, I would just laugh along and add to it and say, yeah, I'm pretty silly, eh, because I needed to fit in. But deep down, I was getting scarred because I didn't feel good about myself. On top of that, I found it very difficult to socialise. I needed, by that time, uh, by that time I had a, a, a need to feel needed by all sorts of people and to prove myself because I started to label myself as a dummy. And I craved the attention of a girlfriend, but I, I couldn't get a girl to even dance with me, let alone go out in those years. And no matter what I did, I just felt dumb. And so when I left high school, even though I matriculated to every university in Australia, I'd met with a careers advisor in Maitland. I went to Raymond Terrace High. So I went all the way to Maitland and I said to the careers advisor, I want to go to uni. He said, oh, no, you won't, you won't survive uni. You're not smart enough. And this is about power paradigms. I believed him because he was white and he was elder, like he was in his 40s. And I thought, oh, he knows more than me. So I gave up the idea of ever going to uni. And so I went to TAFE and I did a diploma in surveying and became a surveyor. And I struggled. I played rugby league in, in Newcastle and I used to bomb myself out every Saturday night after a game under 19s and under 20s just getting drunk to get the courage to ask a girl to dance so she could say no so I'd drink more. And so for years I was just writing myself off with alcohol to try and hide the pain that I was feeling in terms of not fitting in. Then I finished my diploma and moved to Cairns and lived in Cairns for a couple of years and it was a totally different environment where I found I didn't feel judged and I found the Aboriginal communities accepted me really quickly. And so for two or three years in Cairns, I had a wonderful time where I felt just like an everyday person. I didn't feel like someone that didn't fit in. Then I moved back to, to Newcastle and eventually to Sydney to try and get work. And I was very fortunate. I, I met a young girl on the 24th of December 1986 at about two o'clock, actually, with red hair. And I think these days they would call it stalking, but she just called it, she liked me. So she tracked me down and held onto me and bought me chocolates and shirts and wore me down to the point that I, I married her. <laughs> And in the book I talk about how she's the love of my life and, and she's a wonderful person and we had three wonderful children who are now 29, 25 and 23. And they were the greatest gifts and the greatest achievements of my life. And everything was, was great. During that time in my 30s I did a degree. I only did the degree because I wanted to prove to myself I could actually do a university degree. And of all things I hated, it was commerce, but uh, an Aboriginal man named Knuckle Rob Bryant rang me up. He said, hey, bros, if you turn up today at UTS, they're going to sign, they can sign you up to a degree without having to go through UAC, which is the admissions process. And a lot of Aboriginal people really don't like having to plan five months ahead. If you can get someone on the day and say, hey, we can do this now, people like me will go, yeah, I'm in. 
And so I was in. I, of all things, I was in a degree majoring in accounting. Of all the things I disliked, it was accounting. But I got through it and I, I discovered I had a natural ability to get my head around economics. And so I graduated with HDs and distinctions in the majority of my subjects. And even though I still have a very, very dim view of economic systems and of the impact of consumerism on society, and I have a very, very poor view of share markets and the global greed that drives those kinds of things, it gave me an understanding of the machine and how it all works. And so I finished my degree and I actually ended up working at a university and I lectured in economics as well as being a marketing manager, but that was a very toxic environment and I found that the team I was working with, which was an equity team, they isolated me at a point in time and wouldn't talk to me and I couldn't understand why. But it really hurt because by this time I really had a big need to be liked by people because my whole sense of, of me was dependent upon external validation. And so because I'd been socially isolated, I started to doubt myself even more and at the same time my wife was very ill with, with the, the birth of our third child and so it all got too much for me and that's when I had my breakdown. So I'd seen it coming, I'd been seeing psychologists, I'd been doing counselling, I could meditate and float above the earth a thousand miles, I knew all about cognitive behaviour therapy, you name it, I did it because I was a perfectionist which was part of the problem. And so I tried to do everything I could to not fall off the cliff, but I fell off the cliff and I fell off hard. The day it hit me was on the day of my 35th birthday. I sat on the steps of a building and started to cry. Somehow got myself home and stayed in a bed, curled up in a fetal position for three months crying. Didn't eat, irritable bowel syndrome. I lost my ability to recollect things in terms of short-term memory and I was consumed with panic attacks and anxiety attacks though hitting me everywhere and so I just became agoraphobic and didn't leave the house. Except when I was going to seek counselling and psychiatric help. What I got from the messaging from the, the psychiatrists and the counsellors, and this wasn't their intention but it was my interpretation, when I said, what's the cure, I was told with a smile, there is no cure, at best you'll be able to manage this. And then the conversations gave me a belief that there was a thought that I'd never ever recover and I'd never ever be able to work again and that I would never ever be normally functional. And so as a consequence of that, I looked at my wife who was only 30 and I thought she's a young woman, she doesn't deserve this emotional, mental cripple where she has to go and look after. She was out cooking hamburgers at the Crew Mobile from midnight till dawn shift because I was off work and I was a mess. I was just crying all the time. My dad went into the Crew RSL club and heard all the guys I played rugby league with and cricket with for years and they were all laughing saying Callaghan's a loony. So at the time, to me, the only logical solution was to kill myself and I walked down the end of the road that day, this particular day, when, I, when I'd made up my mind and the kids and family were getting in the car to go to the Kmart and I thought, this is the chance, I'll kill myself here. And even though I know it will cause them pain, it will free my wife up so that she can find a decent man that she's deserving of and it will mean my kids won't be tormented in the school grounds. So I thought it a really good way to look after my family. I wasn't doing it to run from the pain. I was doing it to try and give them a life. But as I was about to do it, 
and you can call it the angels, you can call it God, you can call it serendipity, you can call it madness, you can call it intuitive self, you can call it lots of things. This thought came to me and it said, hey, maybe you've got this all wrong. Maybe the people that said you can't get through this and you can't heal, maybe they've got it wrong. Maybe you don't have to believe the labels. Maybe you can come through this and learn and show other people how to come through it as well. And I thought, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And so I walked back up the hill and decided I would live. And to this day, I've never ever doubted that path, even though it hasn't been an easy one. It took me years and years of hard work, using a number of different therapies, books, and also culture to rebuild myself. But at a point in time, and I don't know when it happened, but at a point in time, I went past where I was and became the real me. So my breakdown became my breakthrough. What I talk about in terms of the black dog locking me into the jail became my gatekeeper, but then the black dog became my keys to freedom. The black dog got me through and showed me the way. And I've, I forever will give thanks for what I went through because it gave me the ability to look at myself, to challenge myself and to come up with where do I want to go with this. And what I learned from that was that I'd spent the majority of my 35... What I learned from that was that I'd spent the majority of my 35 years of my life trying to be all things to all people at all times and I was exhausted. I was a living chameleon, which meant I was always vulnerable to people's negative feedback and it's always going to come. So I was a house of cards that would collapse daily when someone didn't give me the perfect score for something I was doing. Once I got back into the workplace and TAFE threw me a lifeline and I was there for 17 years, I started from an Aboriginal management position to a CEO position which was unheard of and certainly I never had leadership aspirations at all. I just always believed in doing my best and that's all I ever do every day. I don't try and be perfect, I just try and do my best. I kept on getting promotions to the point a little black fellow with no shoes from Cruel Mission who was scared of his own shadow became an institute director and I'm the only Aboriginal person to become an institute director. And then I got headhunted to be the most senior Aboriginal public servant in New South Wales in 2013-2014 where I was the head of Aboriginal housing. And so my story is one of never giving up but in a way the way to never give up is to let go of trying to be anything. And so I let go of trying to please people and I looked within and thought rather than please people what is it that I need to do that is right by me in terms of my moral, ethical, spiritual compass? And so that's where I've always been guided now. I truly have hope in me. I have hope in people around me. I truly believe in the fact that each one of us is a beautiful story. But I also truly believe that the environment in which we grow is quite damaging to us and can take us away from our story very, very easily. And so one of the reasons I write these books is to try and open up people's minds to look at new worldviews, to say, hey, Am I walking in my footsteps? And what can I learn from Aboriginal culture that can actually add to my life? So what I'm trying to say is, rather than people feel sorry for Aboriginal people and go, well, we need to help pick them up and close the gap, how about coming at it from a different angle and say, well, yes, we need to do our right, we need to do the right thing for Aboriginal people. At the same time, there's a lot we can learn. We don't need to be arrogant. We need to actually be humble and say, what can we learn from the world's oldest living culture? How can we incorporate that into our daily lives 
because you never know, there might be some really good stuff there that we're missing. When I look back at my life and what do I do every day to keep, to keep the air in my tyres, if you like, or the petrol in the tank, there are a couple of different things and, and some of these things I, I teach in my wellbeing workshops. But the number one thing is gratitude. I actually have a thing called a gratitude diary. And the Gratitude Diary came about a couple of years ago. It's a really nice little leather-covered book I was given as a, as a present from a speech I gave years ago. And the Gratitude Diary, every day I write something great about the day before. And it doesn't have to be the best thing because I don't want to stress myself out trying to get priorities. I'll just pick something that's really great and they'll be diverse. So, for instance, today... What will probably go into my gratitude diary tomorrow is the walk along Coogee Cliffs because there's a beautiful little wetlands area there that's very special. Yesterday, what will go into my diary was a, a Thai meal I had at Coogee at a place called the Banyan Tree. <laughs> really, really good Thai. The day before, it was a galah sitting on a tree. The day before, it was helping my son repaint our house. And so when I look at my gratitude diary that I've been keeping for two years... I'll see that it's very diverse, which lets me know that I'm, I'm harvesting different things around me. I'm just not anchoring my well-being on one thing. So I keep the gratitude diary, but because I keep the gratitude diary and I'm always seeing 10 out of 10s, every day I'll see them. I'll go, oh, there's a 10 out of 10. Gee, that was really nice. And it just picks me up. But also in the book, I've got a model called the dreaming tree. And so the dreaming tree is about four parts. The soil is what you're growing in. So part of it is looking at your past and saying, and your present, and saying, am I in good soil or bad soil, or is it a bit of both? And usually it's a bit of both. What are the good parts of my soil, and what do I need to fix for me to grow as a tree? Because the dreaming tree is you. And you look at any garden, the garden will grow when it's got the right soil. So you need to look at that. Am I in, is my soil, soil full of love, or is it full of self-hate? Is my soil full of nurture? Do, in my soil do I share things? All that kind of stuff. A tree can't grow and be stable without big roots and lots of roots that go deep and that's about your value systems, that's about your goals and keeping an eye on those things. And for us it's love, respect and humility. It's also having something to believe in. And so for me in my spirituality we believe in, in our, the Father, our Creator but also the Mother and our spirit ancestors. But it could be Christianity, it could be another faith or it could be family or it could be goodness. But it's something to believe in, that's the roots of your tree. The branches of the tree are the things you do every day to make the most. And so in that I talk about how we need to hold on to our power because in Aboriginal spirituality, holding on to our power gives us the ability to help others and to give to the earth and to give to each other. And holding on to your power, the alternative are sites I can take people to that shows you the damage of giving away your power. And we can give our power away to lots of things. We can give our power... And giving our power away is when... Something in our life is taking us away from our footsteps. So it could be worrying about what someone's saying about you. It could be a fear of losing your job. It could be wanting to get revenge on someone. It could be simple things like my phone, I use it to send texts and to maintain love or does it own me? If it owns me, I've given away my power. Do I drink that glass of wine on a Friday because I'm happy or do I do it to make myself happy, depending on why you're doing it? you're either adding or it's taking away from your power. And that's all about making choices in your life and owning decisions and coming up with the right answers and getting the most of every day. 
but in terms of the hygiene factors, that's the tree trunk of the tree. So the factors that I talk about that I do regularly is looking at things like relationships. What do I do to nurture relationships? It's the give and take. And with these things in the tree trunk, you need to be disciplined. So you need to diarise them, which sounds formulaic and scientific and people say, that's not right. But if you don't do it that way, you won't do it. So the things you need to do regularly to put petrol in your tank for me is things like nurturing relationships. It's about celebration special events. So people's birthdays, Christmas, Easter, regardless of where they come from, it's a chance to be with loved ones and to have special memories. I also talk about kind of tribalism and getting around with a bunch of strangers and all cheering. So, you know, the state of origin footy or a soccer match, I call it fellowship. It's, it's fellowship with other human beings that you'll never see again where you share something really positive. It's things like recreation and celebration. So for me, every week is a celebration. So Friday afternoons, I will have a Chardonnay and go, great week. And I'll, I'll really, it ties into my gratitude diary. I make sure I focus on the positives and if negatives creep in, I'll go, no, I'll have a think about you later, thanks, but I'm celebrating good things right now. So you can just bugger off. So celebrating is really important and part of that is recreation. So we can't all go overseas every year, but every three years you might say, well, that's a big celebration to say well done to me, so I'm going to plan that one. But in the meantime, what are the simple things that give me enjoyment? And they're the things to celebrate a lot with. So for me, it's massage. I get a massage a month, I go to the movies once a month on my own so I can eat the chock top and the popcorn on my own. And I love cooking and I love cooking for other people. That, that, gives, me, that gives me elation. And so I, I love cooking big meals and having people around. So they're the kinds of things that I do to put, to put air into my tyres and I make sure I do them regularly. But the main one is the recreation slash celebration. I say to people... What is it you love doing? Oh, I love reading a book. How long since you've read a book? Oh, three years. Why not? Oh, I'm just waiting for the right time. You won't have the right time. Make sure you do it. In terms of, of mental health, I've been able to tap into the Western theory and, and all the different practices, and I've been able to harvest some really good tools from that. The greatest book that helped me, well, there were two really good books. There was one called Self-Help for Your Nerves that's quite an old book and I think the doctor's name was Claire Weeks, I think from memory. And she spoke about four techniques. She said, she said, face your fears, accept how you're going to feel, float above it and let time pass. And that kept me going for many years. And then in recent years, I read a book called Happiness Trap, which was fantastic about letting go of happiness. And so what I seek now is the ability to be content no matter what storms are around me. And that's about living each day and getting the most out of it. And I mean, there are practitioners now getting a lot of money out of this really cool thing called, the new fad called mindfulness. Mindfulness has been around for 60,000 years. We call it walking country. And I did it this morning at Coogee Beach. And I saw the magnificence that's around me in terms of the natural environment. It's still there, it's beautiful, it's 10 out of 10. It's all around us if we look. And so when we walk country, we're actually reconnecting with family that's old. And this is an important thing. When we live in cities in our townhouses, we shut ourselves off because we want to escape everyone that's around us. And we lock our doors because we're frightened someone's going to steal our things. In traditional Aboriginal society, we shared everything. And so we didn't have to worry about thieves because we gave it all away. So there's nothing to steal. 
So it's a different way of thinking. So we lock ourselves away because we need a break from what's around us in this busy city and, and, and town life. When we go bush, we're actually back spiritually with our family. Those trees and those animals are all our mob. And so when you're back with family, you, you're back in a nurturing space. And this is why spiritually, country and walking country is far more than just seeing a pretty brook or a river. You're actually connecting with something that's older than you that is part of you. And so in our way, when you walk country knowingly, seeing everything as part of your family, you heal. And this is why subconsciously we, we would say that people that go out and, and walk country, non-Aboriginal people and hikers and campers, and they say, gee, I feel good when I'm up in the mountains or I feel good when I'm on the stream, I feel good when I'm out on the ocean, it's because you're reconnecting with something that's very ancient and very wise and, and smarter than you. And you're giving, you're giving yourself to the unknown in a beautiful way where you're reconnecting with country. So walking country for me is reconnecting with spirit, it's reconnecting with family, it's actually mindfulness because I'm taking into account everything that's beautiful. If you walk country at different times a year, you'll see different colours. So you, you walk country July, August, you'll see lots of yellow because the wattles are out. Then you come into spring, you'll see lots of pinks because the, the flowers are pink. And now you'll see it's all purple. So we have different colours and the land talks to us and it tells us where to go for food, it tells us how to live, it tells us the different seasons and where to go. So our country, if you know all about the mother and love the mother, she'll always give you what you need. And so walking country is far more than just a walk, but that's a good thing too. And so for me, going bush and walking country is pivotal and I live in the bush and I walk country an hour and a half every day. In much the same way, in terms of physiology, the human body is kept alive by the blood system. Country is kept alive by the water system. So whenever you turn over a stone or dig a trench, the smallest of things, you're changing where that water goes and something dies. And this is how carefully our people manage country. They watched all that to make sure that that habitat that ecosystems, that microsystems were sustained and kept alive because everything is important. And there's big storylines, big storylines and engravings I can show people that shows that when you look at these carvings, it looks like jigsaw puzzles. But what they say is all the pieces must come together in unity in order for us to achieve well-being. We cannot achieve well-being. We cannot be strong unless we're all together. And that goes for our mental health as individuals we need to connect with our inner spirit, but also with others. But as a community, we need to come together as communities. And as a country, we need to come together as a country. But in our spirituality, when we come together, we need to listen to the oldest living culture's law because it belongs to the land. And when we start listening and then bringing the two worlds together, then as a country, we will start achieving well-being, which then will start fitting into individual well-being as well. So here I am now midway through a PhD and about to sign contracts to do a, a couple of books, which is a pretty exciting point in time. I've talked about going with the flow and not looking too far into the distance in terms of destination. That's okay. But again, I am a contradiction. I think it's important to have some goals to head towards, but the way you get there is where 
I think in life you need fluidity and flexibility about how you get there. So in terms of the bigger picture, why am I doing all this? I'm doing all of this because I truly believe, as I've said, that we all are special stories. And my kind of goal is to try and share the belief in stories so that other people believe in their stories and are able to really walk their footsteps and achieve greatness in terms of what that means for them. And greatness doesn't mean we all become Olympic gold medalists. Greatness doesn't mean we all become CEOs. Greatness is about you walking your footsteps and being able to look back when you're 100 years of age and say, I'm really happy with my story. I think I've achieved what I set out to do. And when I ask people those kinds of things, they'll say, I want to be known as a good person. I want to be known as a good family person. I was a caring person I shared. So in terms of what I hope to achieve in the next few years, I've done a lot of work in the past where I've been an administrator and I've worked in bureaucracy and, and partly it was to give back, but also it was to raise a family. And now that my family are older, it's given me freedom to really look at in some way self-actualization in terms of what is it I want to do with my story before I become too old and weathered and people will just feel sorry for me. And so the, the writing is a catalyst for me. If someone would have said to me five years ago, you're going to have four books written in a PhD in 2019, I would have said you're dreaming out of the castle. But I have, I've actually got two novels sitting and I'm about to write another two books and I've got a book already published. And I'm writing those because I'm trying to share my thoughts so it will create conversations where people can become more awakened to who they are and what they want and what their colours look like in all shapes and forms. So I'm very excited about the next part of my life. That's not to discredit where I've been because where I've been has given me the tools to place me in a place now where I can write books and share. So. I'm hoping to be able to, to have these books go out and about to create conversations where I can be invited to come and speak and share with people and be a catalyst and a ripple effect for greater positivity and unity and community where we all feel part of this country, where Aboriginal people are respected and understood and seen for the, the wonderful resource that they are rather than an impediment and a nuisance, where Aboriginal people can feel safe where they can share story, but where non-Aboriginal people can learn from our story and also feel part of this country. And that's the cultural perspective, but also in that, tapping into improved wellbeing. And so that's, that's my journey where I'm only one small fish in a very big sea, but every one of us is important. And so if I had to leave with a, with a, a closing thought, it's for everybody to appreciate their magnificence and that can be done in a humble way. Each one of us is magnificent. Each one of us has a part to play and if each one of us thinks about that and embraces that responsibility in a positive way, imagine what we can mobilise in this country in terms of going forward, in terms of mind, body, in terms of mind, body and spirit well-being. That's the challenge I think before us, I, I really have a lot of time for the younger generation. I think that a lot of the younger generation, because of social media, even though some people criticise it and it can be toxic, it's also a wonderful mechanism for sharing. And I think young people's ability to share is a wonderful opportunity if we can plant the right seeds of positivity of sharing. And the young people who are our future leaders, in some ways, be 
become the teachers of the old people in terms of how to really embrace what's before us. Thank you for listening. If there's been anything in this podcast that you found distressing, don't forget to talk to your usual support person or call Lifeline on 131114. And if you'd like to hear more in the Being Well podcast series, you can find it on the Black Dog Institute website.